It's on us. Good morning. Um, welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We're very thankful that you are here to worship with us, uh, to fellowship with us, and whatever conversations began, heard a lot of laughter, and uh, hope that you would continue those conversations even after our worship service is done. We have our Equip Hour classes going on, as well as our uh, Sunday school for students uh, in their different ranges, and, uh, and as well as uh, um, our, our Career Ministry 317. So um, if you have any questions about what else is taking place today, please ask any of the members. Um, and I think we're serving lunch today, aren't we? Uh, what, what are we having today? Anybody know the menu? All right. Some, some good food is coming up. And so make sure you uh, take advantage of that and enjoy um, the Lord's Day together as, uh, as I think uh, the Lord intended us to in the celebration of, uh, um, of, of fellowship and our redemption and our sharing together as we look to God's Word. So we are looking to God's Word this morning, and that's in uh, Job, and uh, we will be beginning in chapter 2. I will rebuild um, some of the things that we have said already in terms of Job. We recently started our series in Job, and um, I know it's going very slowly. I think uh, one of our brothers had, had calculated that at this rate it'll take us like eight or nine years, and it's not going to take that long. I promise. Because once you get into the dialogue portions, then it, I think it's appropriate to take an entire dialogue, an entire argument all in one sitting, right? Like, uh, what, what is it that, you know, Bill Dad has to say to Job? And then the next week, what is Job's response to that? It, it, it'll be larger chunks. But here, we have to build out, number one, our theology of suffering as it relates to God and God's sovereignty, um, and so that's what we're talking about, suffering and the sovereignty of God. This is really part three. It was supposed to be part two, but we didn't get finished. And so we are in part three of Job chapter one, verses 13 through two, chapter 10. And let, let me remind you of something that we're trying to impress upon you so that we, we have a right theology when it comes to suffering. It, we say it's a theology of suffering because we want to recognize them first and foremost that most foundationally, everything is an issue of who God is. Now, not an issue of who I am. It often feels like to us in the midst of suffering or in the midst of blessing that is really about what God does for me with emphasis on for me. But once we understand what the scriptures attest to, that the entire universe is created by God and for God, then we start to, to reassess our understanding of our identity, our purpose, our satisfaction, our blessings, and yes, even our sufferings in light not of my experience versus what it could be, not in light of my experiences versus what others are experiencing, but in terms of who God is and what he gets to do, what he chooses to do, and what his good intention might be through it. I, I want to warn us, because this is not going to come up very often in the book of Job, but maybe it, this is a good place to kind of remind ourselves that just as we warn each other about this, this human kind of self-focused sense of righteousness that says that I am not as bad as that guy over there. 
Similarly, we need to be very careful when we think about our suffering and we are tempted with the words, Lord, number one, I don't deserve this, which is patently, you know, patently misguided, right? But secondly, that, hey, I know you're going through a lot, but it's not as bad as the people in Ukraine. Right? This, is, this is the old thing that your mom used to say, right? Like, hey, finish your carrots. There's children starving in Africa. And as you get older, you start thinking, well, why don't you ship them my carrots, you know? I don't, I don't get it. Like, how does that, that doesn't feed them. That doesn't feed the poor. Like, what, what is the point? And we are tempted often in our very humanness, in our self-centeredness, to think of everything from, from us out. You know, at least I'm not as bad as those people. At least my circumstances aren't as bad as those people. Those are poor comforts, friends. Because brothers and sisters in Christ, people exactly like you and me, are actually starving someplace right now. Are actually in the crosshairs of war right now. Have been struggling with generational poverty or difficulty or disease. I mean, they are suffering. And and our joy should not be based on, well, at least I'm not suffering like those guys. Those guys are us. Now, our comfort is not that my circumstance is good now, not bad now, or it's not as bad as others now. Our comfort is in there is a God. And that all the twists and turns of this life will eventually direct itself to his glory. That whatever else the purposes of, of, of national, national movements, of wars, of disease of pain, of suffering. All of it is to remind us that we are not God. Our place in this world is temporary at best and that there is a God and he is in absolute control. It's a long passage, so I'm not going to read it all to you. I'm just going to pray and then we're going to kind of walk through what we have seen already going back from verse 13, and then that way we could start to really unpack the rest of this particular portion of Job, in, uh, which is really the rest of the narrative portions of Job, um, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. But let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for grace, for guidance, and for a word for our, our souls this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we want to recognize our frailty Lord, it is so subtle, but we find ourselves constantly giving thanks that we are impenetrable, that we are blessed, that we deserve every good, excellent thing to happen to our lives. Lord, we are anxious because something might upset our prosperity, our success, the potential prosperity and success of our children. We're so distracted, Lord, by things that are at best temporary, and at worst, our idols of our souls. And we pray that you would use Job to encourage us to think rightly, to remember our God, even in the midst of difficulty, not to make Job our example of, uh, of man, it, it could be worse, it could be like Job, but instead to be our example of faith, of one that knows that there is a God and that regardless of what happens, even if he is incapable of explanation, he could still look and turn to his steadfast rock. I pray that that would be the truth for every person in this room. That if there are those that need to know the Savior Jesus Christ and to know what eternal security is all about, 
that they might, they might repent of their sins and turn to you for salvation. And that those of us who have called upon the name of the Lord for salvation already would be reminded again that nothing that is of eternal value can ever be lost because we are in your hands and you are a sovereign and perfectly good God. So we praise you for your grace to us and ask that you would bless our time as we look to the scriptures now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I keep reminding you, uh, we are so familiar with the story of Job that you you probably remember the details without realizing that there are so many chapters in the book of Job, right? Everything we know about Job um, uh, takes place in the first, really, two, two chapters. And then you have like, you know, you have like, 40 more chapters that speak about Job, about suffering, about God, and those are kind of lost on us. But the purpose of Job, then, is to unpack how to think through all of these issues of life, how to think through the the dangers that we experience, the suffering that we encounter, how to think about that in light of who God is. That's the entire purpose. And every dialogue that takes place in the rest of the book of Job after the first two chapters is about unpacking theology in a way that says, okay, so if this is true, then this must be true. And what we will see, and we'll talk about that more next week, but what we'll see in Job's friends is not that they are theologically absolutely wrong. They're not heretics. They're not showing up and going, Job, you know what the problem is? You're not worshiping Baal. You need to bow down before Buddha, right? You got the wrong God. That's not their approach. Their approach is, this is what God is. They believe that it's true, and most of what they say is accurate. It's a misapplication of theology. It's taking who God is and saying, Job, you must be in sin. God doesn't do this stuff to people unless they're sinners. This is indirect. This is a direct, right, retaliation for something that you have done and you're not willing to confess. And there's different levels of that that come at Job. But Job, in his innocence, is is just simply trying to say, no, I have done my best to walk in righteousness with God. And if my Savior slay me, I will still follow him. He says stuff like, I know my Redeemer lives and I will see him in that day. His theology is rock solid and his application of theology is, God is God, I am not. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's something we can learn. Because in the midst of of struggle and pain, we are often tempted to think that God has abandoned us when, in fact, it is through or empowered by the struggle and pain that God makes glorious things take place. I'll give you one example in the New Testament. And I know you're in Job. If you want to flip over to Philippians chapter 1, I just want to look at three verses really quickly. Philippians, Philippians 1, verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And I, I want to make this simple point. Paul is in, imprisoned falsely, right? And uh, I think he has a good case to say that he shouldn't be imprisoned. Um, he has detractors that have accused him of causing all the turmoil in the different cities. And so Rome has put him in their house arrest. He is cut off from some of his friends, though he can receive some visitors, etc. And this is what he says about, about all the injustice that is taking place, all the suffering that he is facing. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, suffering, imprisonment, injustice, has really served to advance the gospel. Now understand, the gospel didn't barely squeak by. 
You know, he doesn't say, hey, with all the stuff that's going on, I just want you to know, whew, the gospel barely made it. But it made it. We're good. We're okay. He says the opposite. He says, everything that has happened to me is, has cause, is the cause of the advancement of the gospel. It is because of my current suffering and these conditions that the gospel is advancing. And we say, well, that's, that's pretty crazy. That's a lot to draw out from just one verse. Look at the next two verses. It answers the question, well, how is that possible? Verse 13 says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. His suffering at that moment spotlights his treasure. In other words, he says it very clear that the inner sanctum of of the imperial guards, these guys, the elite amongst the Roman soldiers, as they guard me, it has become clear to all of them that I am imprisoned for the cause of Christ. In other words, my suffering and the difficulty of this moment, it spotlights that I treasure the things of Christ more than freedom. And I think that in itself is one of the, the ways that the gospel has advanced. Then verse 14, and most of the brothers, now talking about brothers in Christ, most of the uh, fellow Christians, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's suffering has encouraged boldness amongst fellow believers. So so he's saying the gospel has gone forward so that even the elite of the elite in the military know that I am in prison because of someone called Christ, and they're curious. And then most of the brethren who have come to hear about my imprisonment, knowing my suffering, have become emboldened to speak the word without fear. See, we, we often close our eyes because we think something's going to be scary. But spiritually speaking, you realize that when something is difficult and scary and suffering comes, we're supposed to enter in with eyes wide open to see what the Lord might do. And the more we understand of what God is doing in any given circumstance, the greater our courage, the greater the gospel witness, the greater the testimony and the, and the, the value of following Jesus Christ no matter what, of praising God and honoring him regardless of circumstances. And that is a theology that is suffering proof, that is bulletproof to all kinds of attacks, difficulties, trials, and pain. And I think this is what the book of Job is meant to be for us. It's meant to be a a living testimonial and a walking out, a dialogue over, is God sufficient, right? That he may be worshipped in any circumstance, even in the midst of my suffering. So this is uh, the area that we've covered to this point and the area that we're going to see. The first is unimaginable loss. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago. And we said that in verse, starting in verse 13, everything goes wrong on a good day. And you know what everything is, right? Um, uh, I think we look at it in terms of the overlapping tra- uh, tragedies, right? There's marauding theft, consuming fire, there's, a organ- there's an organized heist, right? And then there is a killing, a deadly storm. 
And we said that in, in a way, one, they all happen one repetitiously upon another. One guy breaks in, in the, and on a good day. And I say it's a good day because it's such a, such a normal day, a normal, excellent day, a day when his kids are gathered together in their home and they're, they're, they're partying because it's someone's birthday. They're having a good time. They love each other. And it was Job's practice early in the chapter that once they do that, then after it's done, then he offers sacrifice for them. Or uh, we said that the Hebrew is unclear. It could mean that Job does that on the day that they begin to have feasts, then he begins to offer sacrifice. If the second is true, then that means this good day was a day that he began to worship the Lord on behalf of his children, offering up sacrifices on their behalf. That's when messenger one shows up and says, hey, listen, it was an excellent day, but the Sabians fell upon us. All right? And then, and then while he was speaking, the scripture says, the next messenger comes and says, hey, listen, this is, this is supposed to be a good day. And then fire from heaven, probably lightning or something of that effect, has come and destroyed everything. And only I have lived to survive to tell you. And while he was speaking, yet another comes and, and speaks about how the camels and the sheep are gone. Like, like it just keeps coming, storm after storm after storm, until finally the, the last one, while the third was speaking, shows up and says, says uh, um, only I have come to live and survive to tell you that a great wind has collapsed the roof of your oldest son's house and all your children are dead. In a matter of moments, he has literally lost everything. No, it's true. If we want to play the comparative game, we could say, dude, it could be worse. We could be Job, right? Things are so bad. Things happen so bad. This is, this is almost impossible how terrible things are. And all of it happens on an otherwise good day. I was thinking about that, right? Um, I think one of the more, more difficult uh, um, tragedies that, that our family faced was the passing of my mom. And um, because it was, um, because it was the first family member that passed, and it was hard. And um, I don't remember the exact date, right? Uh, George knows the exact date. Um, I know it was like May, I think it was May 29th. I think that was the date, but I don't know that. <clears throat> but for some reason, I remember it was a Thursday, and you say, well, that's weird. Why, why would you remember that? I don't, I don't know. But I think it was because there was something so ordinary about that day. And when you've lost somebody in a tragic way, you, you remember something like, yeah, it was a sunny day, or it rained that day, or something. It's like you remember like normal stuff because it, as far as the world, the, the cold and heartless world and its systems, right? The, day, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. Weather patterns change. There's a high-pressure system or a low-pressure system. I don't know how that works, right? But it's cloudy and it's raining or it's sunny and it's bright. It's just a normal average day and tragedy strike human beings all over this world on a regular daily in fact in a in a in a moment by moment basis this is the world that is broken with sin and if the entire world was intended by god purely to take care of us to protect us to give us good you know good experiences and a happy ever after then he has summarily failed. And I think the message of Job and the faith of Job is that God hasn't failed. He faces unimaginable loss. And as the man of sorrow, what does he do? And we look at it and read that with me as we look at verse, verses uh, 20 and 21. 
Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and he worshipped. The man of sorrow, his response is worship. Now, and don't get me wrong, his response is first, um, is absolute pain, right? Job expresses grief in ways that, that are not our custom, but we get it. When it says that Job got up, we suspect that maybe by this time, having, having bad message after bad message, interrupting bad message, and finally all his kids are gone too, any prospect of future success and prosperity, of provision and safety, they're all gone, and finally his future is gone anyway. All the kids are dead. Probably knocks him to the floor. And so this is Job getting up, tearing his robe, Again, it's not something we do, right? Shaves his head. Again, not something we necessarily do, but we get it. And then he falls on the ground. All of these signs of immense grief. And, and I don't think the Lord is encouraging us to, to pretend that there is no grief. In, in fact, he's encouraging us, I think, in the book of Job to embrace it, to be okay with it, to weep where people are weeping. You realize Jesus wept. It's, it's like, you know, a lot of our young people's favorite verse in the Bible because it's so short, right? Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Do you remember that context? Because his friend Lazarus is dead. But you draw back from that and you watch that story unpack. Did Jesus know Lazarus was going to die? He did. And yet he delayed three days before he came and he told the disciples it's because it's to the glory of God. And they say, hey, it's time to go to Bethany. And because Lazarus, you know, Lazarus is asleep. You know, and they're, oh, is he asleep? Uh, what does that mean? Like, you know, he's sick and stuff? He'll be all right then. And they're like, no, no. And Jesus had to tell him plainly, he's dead. Like, what? And he shows up and he sees the pain of suffering, of loss, of death on a family that he loves. And he weeps. Grief is appropriate in the midst of sorrow. And Job's grief is genuine and real and expressed and impassioned. It's an expression that tells us that he is very much just like us broken, and for those of you that think that worshiping and following Jesus Christ means that you are so stoic that, you know, all your loved ones can die and every bad thing can happen and you're like, you know, I'm, I'm just a man of faith. It doesn't matter to me at all. You worship a wrong God. Our God weeps and he cares and it hurts, right? And, he, and I think Job is an example both in the grieving as well as in the worship. He doesn't just grieve. He doesn't, he doesn't swallow himself, right, in just his depression and pain and just kind of curl up into a ball and think only of himself because even in the midst of the struggle of pain and the recognition of grief, he realizes that God is still God, that nothing has happened, that God hasn't taken away anything that is meant to be eternal, Right? And so because of that, he grieves and then he worships. And for us, we read that and we think, man, Job is a weird dude. Like, who just grieves and worships? Many of the men and women of faith in the Old Testament do. It's an expression of genuine faith that God is more significant than their current comfort, than their current security. Bad things happen to their nation, to their loved ones, to their babies. And they grieve openly, painfully. And then they go to their living God because God is still God. And he has not changed. And he says an incredible statement in verse 21 as an act of worship. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb. I brought nothing with me into this life. And naked I shall return when I go into the grave 
I'll be able to take nothing into the next life. And he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, in essence, that everything I've ever had is the Lord's to give. And everything he takes away is the Lord's to remove. His name should be blessed. And he doesn't even say, I bless the name of the Lord. This isn't just a personal validation of who God is. He says, as a cry of worship, blessed be. It is an invitation for all that could hear this to say, come and bless the name of the Lord because he is still Lord. It's an invitation for us, like what, two, three, maybe 4,000 years later? 4,000? Yeah, about 4,000 years later? To read these words and say, Job invites us in the midst of our suffering to come and see who God is and to bless his name because he is sovereign, but also because he is good. All right? Naked I came in, into this world, naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, that brings us then, I think, right? Um, unimaginable loss. And the, and, the, um, and the response of the man of sorrow, he worships. It brings us to our third point, which is really the starting point of what we are talking about today. If, if, you, are, if you are visiting with us and you're curious about those other things, we much more in-depth message on that a couple of weeks ago. But we want to look, starting in, in point number three, the unyielding pain of Job in chapter two, starting in verse one. Let me read that for you. It says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Does it sound familiar to you? Well, it should, right? Because this is exactly what had happened earlier in the book of Job. Uh, There's a day right? Um, verse 6, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and it tells us almost the exact same thing. And as God, and, and we made emphasis on that because Job, the book, is making emphasis on that. It wasn't Satan barging into God's throne room and going, hey, guy, hey, guy, I got something for you. You know, you know that, that servant Job? I think he's fake. And God doesn't go, oh, my goodness, who are you talking about, right? It's the opposite, God says, you know what, and, and, and so we don't draw our angelology from just this two chapters, right? I don't, I don't know that it's a fact that God caused all the angelic beings to a meeting all the time. This may be the only two times that he calls them all in. But when God calls a meeting, every angel and demon summoned must come. This is not a dualistic version, right, where God is really strong and he's hoping Satan might come to the table. No, God demands and it has to happen because he is God. And so the angels come to report what is going on. Satan shows up, and God says, so what have you been up to? And he has to report, so he says the same thing, going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. And the Lord says to Satan, and don't invert those, it's not Satan goes, hey, there's this dude that I think is a total sham. It's God saying, have you considered my servant Job? God is literally putting Job front and center to challenge Satan to say, have you thought of this guy? Look at verse, uh, look at verse 3 of chapter 2. 
Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? We've already unpacked the idea of being blameless and upright. doesn't mean he's sinless, but it means that he is a man that is characterized by wanting to do what is right in the eyes of God. He stands before the Lord, and, and because, like Abraham, and he was, he was probably in that time of Abraham, before the law, before the giving of the law, before the written scriptures, And yet he is a man who is willing to take God at his word. And because of that, God has accounted that to him as righteousness. And so here's a man saved as much as we're saved, not because of anything he has done, but because he has trusted in this living, gracious, and loving God. And so he said, have you considered my servant Job? He's a blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still, and this is the part that's different, He says he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. See, this is God flexing on Satan. It really is. It's God saying that I knew Job's integrity. And Job's integrity stood fast. Right? The redundancy of what is happening, right? That, that God calls the angelic beings again, and he directly addresses Satan again, and he brings up his servant Job again. It is to, it intended to prove that not only was God right about Job, but it is in his face, God is always right about everything that he speaks. And even though unjustly, and that's that phrase, without reason, the idea is it was an unjust thing, right? There was, in other words, it's God declaring that there was no particular retaliation that is involved in this distress. All the tragedies that take place in Job's life, Job is going to claim that. He hasn't heard everything that's happening in the throne room, but he's going to actually and literally claim that same position that, as far as he knows, he has not done anything that is commensurate or, you know, demands an immediate response from God in punishment. In other words, he sees this not as God punishing him for something that he has done or something that he has thought. He doesn't know why this has come, but he'll embrace it because God is still God and he has absolute right to give and to take away, to challenge, to put on trial, and to cause difficulty to demonstrate the value of a person's faith. I find it incredibly interesting, right, that when you look at how things have played out, God is always right. I mean, maybe I don't even need to say that to you, right? Um, Of course, God is always right. And in, in Job... We have to recognize something. When it is God that says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? This is in verse chapter 1, verse 8, right? Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless, upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. And he repeats that here. When he says that to Satan, let me ask you something. Is God certain? Is God certain about Job and his integrity? The answer is yes. Because you have one of two options. It's either that God, as he states that, even in chapter 1, verse 6, before Satan pours all this stuff into Job's life, God already, already knew that Job's faith would remain true, that his integrity would be unbroken, right? Because he is sovereign. He knows. He is in absolute control of everything. He is God. Or God did not know, and he is either lying or he's exaggerating or he's speaking false hope or potential hope. 
possible hope. And if we read our scriptures correctly, I don't think you ever find God being uncertain about himself or the things that he knows. So if we want to remain orthodox in our view of God being God and very God and sovereign God and powerful God and all-knowing God, then I think we have to accept the fact that of all the individuals that are involved in this first two chapters, God is the one that absolutely knows that Job is going to be okay. And literally no one else does. Satan doesn't know that for sure. In fact, he's hoping that Job will crack. Because he's a creature. He's not the creator. He's not in absolute charge. He doesn't have perfect knowledge. So he is, he is inciting the Lord and he's saying, no, it's because you bless him. That, that's why he worships you. Take it all away. And then we'll see. And he's hoping that we will see. We'll see him fall. And Job, on his part, has no knowledge of any of this. No holy counsels, nothing to guide him. He doesn't even have the book of Nam. If you guys don't understand what I'm saying, it's like we could look to the book of Job and say, oh my goodness, this is the kind of stuff that can happen. He doesn't have an inscripturated record to go to. Right? This is, this is probably pre-Abraham. Around the time of Abraham, he has just God, maybe some oral tradition of the creator God and the fact that we should worship that God. And if he says something is sin, then we shouldn't do it. And he just wants to worship and honor that God. He is like Abel. He's like many of the great men of faith that come before the law. He doesn't have anything inscripturated to look to and go, okay, what is a principle that God's word tells me about this difficulty? He just has faith. He just knows there's a God. And that God is sufficient. And deserving of worship, whether life is good or life is difficult, whether there's extreme pain or every blessed thing is pouring into my life, God is still God and worthy of my worship. See, nobody knew that Job's faith would endure except God. Why that's important is it tells us, it reminds us that in God's absolute sovereignty, He's not, playing with game. he's not playing games with Job. He's not, he's not gambling with Job's existence. He's not saying, oh, I hope Job ends up being true. Let me roll the dice and let me, let me use some divine sprinkle magic, right, and hope that Job ends up being okay. That's not the way that God works. He knows he's going to be okay. And in our minds and in the minds of the readers of the book of Job, it's supposed to fill us with a sense that our experiences, we are not sure, always, Will our faith hold fast when so many difficulties come? We're not sure. We hope so. We intend to, but we can't guarantee it. But you know who can guarantee it, who knows and is in absolute control? God is. And that not only gives you comfort, but reminds you that whatever he has promised in eternity cannot in any way be diminished or thwarted or detoured, regardless of what he has chosen to bring to us in this life. Man of sorrow worshipped, and he worshipped rightly. And then God demonstrates, or he flexes on Satan to say, see, I told you so. I told you so. And he, of course God told him, because God's the only one that absolutely knew. Right? Did Satan know for sure? No, he's hoping that he would fail. Did Job know for sure? No. He's hoping that he would succeed. But they are all just hoping because they are not God. God doesn't have to hope. He just he just absolutely knows, right? I like what C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, and it's a quote that's famous enough, you may have heard parts of it. 
he says we can ignore even pleasure. He's saying, you know, things that are pleasurable, we can put those things aside. We can ignore pleasure if we need to. He says, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It it is not a coincidence that in some of the most difficult moments of our lives, we must sense that God has to be real, that, he, that, that we are needful of him, that we are broken and incapable, and, and that God is the very one that we need. It's baked into the problem of pain. And don't, see, our temptation is to reinterpret God's goodness and love to mean that he would never allow anything bad to enter into our existence. That's our definition of goodness and love. And it's changing, right, generationally, right? Children raised up with not a sense of the goodness and the value of caring for others, but all being self-focused and the goodness and value of everybody taking care of me, myself, and I. It's risen up in an identity sense where, like, my identity is self-defined. The insanity of our world is partly because we have defined goodness and love to mean only protection, only goodness. Don't let anything bad ever be experienced by this human being when, in fact, God has created or allowed this world to fall into sin so that the pain is a stark megaphone into our spiritual lives to remind us this cannot be all there is. And it's never meant to be. And our clutching to the things of this world is an indication that we do not see God big enough. So this is what Scripture says about Job. God says about him, right? Look at the rest of verse 3 once more. That he says, he holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. There's a couple of things I just want to mention here so we get right. He says he holds fast. And in this verbal stem, it means to seize or grasp or to hang on to. This is like, you know, I used to joke around. I'm not interested in this anymore, but I used to, I used to love roller coasters. Now I'm old. And I go on these roller coasters. It's super fun for the, you know, the, the, the two minutes, three minutes you're on that roller coaster. You go, oh, yeah. And as soon as it's done, I go, oh, oh, dude, I, oh, dude, I got a headache. And then I'm done. I get the one roller coaster and I'm done for the day, right? But back in the day, I loved it so much that I really did. I said, you know, if they would let you sign a liability, they should have no safety harnesses and you just have to hang on to a pole. Like, you know, like, ah, hang on or you'll die. Like, that would be so exciting. Because, right, like, you're taking the excitement to the next level. You know, it's all foolishness now. But, but that's the idea of this hanging on. That sometimes it is so difficult that all you have is to hang on. And he hangs on desperately to integrity. It's a word that means piety or devotion in regard to your relationship with God. Because I think our English word kind of sounds like, man, he holds true to his principles. But the, the, the Hebrew word makes it very clear what he's holding on to is this very strong sense of devotion and commitment to God. He holds fast to who God is regardless of what is taking place. That's the point. It's a word that combines separation, consecration with consistency. This is God saying, see, Job is exactly who I told you he was. And it's been proved out. 
We may not always find the right answers, you know, the big answers to the questions. Like in Philippians, we may not always be clear, Lord, why did you send this difficult moment to my life, you know, for the cause of the gospel, etc. There might be some of those, and we might recognize some of those things in our lives, and sometimes we won't. But the thing we should recognize is God does know our hearts. He knows if we're going to make it. He doesn't ever send us something that is beyond our capacity, right? He sends no temptation that is beyond our capacity um, to be able to, um, I want to say withhold, withdraw, withstand. I know, sometimes there's a, maybe one too many roller coasters there, right? Like the, the brain kind of freezes up. But it's a vindication of God and his rightness concerning Job and Job's faith. It's what God knew, and that is so significant to us in terms of our theology of suffering. God does know. He experiences, he understands your pain, but, but it's not just that he sympathizes. He knows what will be on the other side, the other side of this pain in this life and the other side of eternity. He knows. He has it in his hands. He has never forgotten you. And all eternal things that are meant to be yours for eternity, none of that has diminished or changed. So God vindicates Job. He knew Job's integrity. And then Satan then claims Job's flesh. Verse 4 Six. Now you, you, need to, you need to follow because in chapter 1, the same thing happened. God says, have you thought of my servant Job? Now he adds that you have taken away unjustly all this stuff from him and he is still my servant Job. He still worships me. He still holds fast, right? He still holds fast to his devotion to the living and true God. Then Satan answered, verse 4, he answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, and you know, no one exactly knows what that means. Something that that means like almost skin for skin as in shield for shield, like the first shield, the first layer of skin of protection you've given Job has been his wealth, his fortune, his greatness on earth. Now, skin, that shield is gone. Let's get to the inner shield. Let's get to his actual physical skin. Maybe or maybe he means it more like skin for skin, as in, you know, maybe that's a saying in, in the demonic world. I don't know, somewhere where, you know, the idea is, yeah, but nothing is more significant than your own skin. Survival, right? And the physical realities of pain, that goes above and beyond all. I am more than willing to be gracious to individuals who are suffering, right? Some kind of a physical issue. I've known godly men and women who, um, whether they have back issues, they have something, they are in constant pain. And you might, you might think to yourself, like, I know you're in pain, but I don't think you should be taking, like, Vicodin or, you know, these things can be habit for me. I don't think you should be taking that stuff. Listen, I, you may choose not to, and I'm not upset at you if you do or you don't, but I think I have a lot of grace for individuals who are struggling with a pain that's always on, you know? That's a different story from, you know, like you break an arm. Yeah, that's kind of a subtle pain. It starts to fade after a couple of days. And by the time it heals over, it's like it's itchy more than anything else. It's itchy skin more than anything else because it has healed itself. We're not talking about a temporal thing. We're talking about skin for skin, maybe in the sense of like, let there be pain upon pain physically. And let's see if he will offer up his skin because of his skin, meaning his, offer up, right? like, just take my skin. Let's just end this now, right? Because that's the temptation of every man when he suffers a pain, a physical pain that will not 
subside. So Satan answers the Lord and says, skin for sin. All that a man has, he would give for his life. And again, life here is not so much necessarily his survival. It includes that. But I think the idea is if there's any potential of living a decent life, he might hang on to that vague hope. Unbelievers have that capacity. They could lose everything and somehow make it back because they believe that as long as they have some life, some energy, some purpose, some, some capacity in them, they could do stuff. And I think this is Satan saying that if you remove all capacities and every final bit of hope is lost because his skin has been touched, his physical body has been broken, then you'll see he's been, he'd be willing to give up his life. Verse 5, But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Curse you to your face is the exact charge he had given in chapter 1. Job will curse you to your face. And instead, Job did the exact opposite. And he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan is trying to double down where he probably at this point, he is a smart and intelligent being and he probably realizes he's probably going to lose, but maybe he could get a little skin for skin in the meantime. So the Lord says to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Satan's argument is that there is a difference between what a person has and what a person is, or can I say this, what a person feels. You know, I like what one, um, um, one scholar says, one biblical scholar says, he says, you know, if it was up to us at this point, if we're writing the story and we're putting the words that we want into the Lord's mouth, we would have the Lord say, dude, enough is enough. You're already wrong. Leave Job alone. He has suffered plenty. The man has suffered more than any other human being in the history of the world in a single day, in a matter of moments, right? We've taken him from riches to bankruptcy, greatness to destitution, from happy family to utter bereavement. This is enough. We've already established his piety. He's genuine. His faith is real. This man worships because he knows I'm worthy of worship. End of the trial. That's what we would have said. And yet the Lord disagrees with us. And if he disagrees with us, it must be intended to teach us something very deep. In particular, that God's glory, his glory really is more important than our comfort, right? Than our security, than our temporary happiness. That God's glory is greater than all of that. And so this author says, when all that Job has is taken from him, we may get an approximate or provisional demonstration that God is worthy of worship. But an approximate provisional demonstration is not sufficient for the ultimate glory of God. In the end, it is necessary and right that this man should suffer personal and intimate attack upon himself so that we see absolutely and without doubt that God is worthy of worship. It, it is a hard and difficult lesson that we are trying to say that Job is painting for us. But if we're willing to embrace it, I think Job walks that out in a way that God already knows. And I remind you again and again, because it's helpful for me to realize that God does know. He's not playing games with this man of faith. He knows he will be okay on the other side. And he's going to demonstrate an on record, give us a record of this individual who is righteous and good and loves his God and will love his God no matter what happens to him as an example to us of what genuine faith will look like in that moment, not as a warning that every one of us could get this kind of danger, but as a reminder that God is greater than anything and everything we might desire to have and to hope for and to hold on to in this life. So this is the unyielding pain, physical, personal, 
pain that will come upon his life. Oh, wait, wait. I forgot to do the second part. That when Satan claims his flesh, what does he do? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I did. I put it in the next one. <laughs> the man of affliction, he holds fast. The man of affliction, and this is what we mean by that, right? The satanic pain comes in verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Just so we understand, this is satanic pain, meaning this is something that is wrought of Satan himself. There's a lot of uh, um, scholars who have tried to figure out, okay, what kind of ailment could this be? Where you break out in sores, right, boils, things that, you know, that have pus underneath them. It's nasty, right? Some of you guys, what's that called? Tryptophobia? Is that what it's called? Am I saying the wrong word? Right, where you look at like things that have a bunch of bumps on it and you get like, oh, like that. I don't care. I'm like, oh, that's yucky, interesting, right? I want to touch that. <laughs> Some of you guys have that natural. This would be that, all of your body, right? From the soles of your feet to the tip of your head. In other words, there would be no position that you could sit in stand in that you could kind of lean upon that would save you you'd be like okay okay you know all i could do is i got to balance on my elbow so that i don't like i'm not crushing one of these sore spots right no they're everywhere literally and they're coming constantly let me give you a, a a small taste of some of the things that job says about his physical torment this is job speaking in response to you know his friends and as he does he reveals some of the torment that he's experiencing job 7 5 my flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens. So like these boils, they harden, and then they break out afresh. Nasty. Just in the English, I'm picturing what that looks like. Let's move on. Job 16, 8. God has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face, meaning that Job is literally emaciating. You know when people are really sick and they can't eat and stuff and then you start to see the ribs? This is Job. Job 19, 17. My breath is strange to my wife and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Yeah, I know. You want to make a joke, huh? I do too, about halitosis and about husbands having halitosis. I, I think it is not so much just merely, it could be. It could be that he's talking about his breath smells strange. He's a stench, like he his physically smells um, so, that, uh, so that the children of my own mother, it's an interesting way of kind of putting some separation between him and his siblings who none of whom have come to comfort him at all. At least his friends came to do that. But it could instead be simply that he is saying, <clears throat> my breathing has become kind of strange to my wife and to my other right family members, my distant siblings who have not come to see me. I have become loathsome, a stench in the sense of I am loathsome to them. Like they're not even interested in knowing me because I am dying and that doesn't seem to be moving them in any direction job 19 20 says my bones stick to my skin and my flesh again he's emaciated and i've escaped by the skin of my teeth that's where our phrase you know our english idiom skin of my teeth comes from and yes i have no idea exactly what that's supposed to mean we have no skin on our teeth right so barely escaped and not really i don't know 
I'm not sure. Job 30, verse 17, the night racks my bones and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. The pain is all the way down to the deepest part of my bones. It's not just on the surface. It's everywhere. Job 30, 30, my skin turns black and falls from me. It probably means that it scabs up and falls. My bones burn with heat. And so inside there's almost this, maybe a fever, maybe this burning. But if you put all that together, you're talking about physical, right, brokenness and pain and absolute separation and loneliness. Let me go back to this idea of separation and loneliness as well as talking about the demonic nature of this ailment. When we say that Satan struck Job, because that's what Scripture says, I think we intend to mean that it is, a, it is an illness that is not just a virus that is caught someplace. In other words, no one else that we know of in Scripture or in the history of the world at that time has suffered this exact same physical stress. This is something designed demonically for Satan and by Satan for Job. And if you think about it, you think, well, that, that's kind of weird that Satan would do something physical like that. Is it? In Mark chapter 1, and, and that's just one example, verses 3 to 4, or is it 34? Chicken scratch, sorry. Right? Um, Jesus talks about, the scriptures talk about and attest to, not just in Mark, but in the other Gospels as well, that Jesus heals the sick and casts out demons. It uses, it, uses those phrases together constantly. To where you kind of start thinking, well, is there a connection between them? And I think there is. I think there are some (coughs) diseases that Jesus was facing in that day that was demonically orchestrated in the same way that Job here, this is a satanic physical attack. And it was absolutely personal. It was swift. Notice it says, so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job. Earlier, it was another day that Satan, Satan planned right? Everything. And then he caused everything to happen. But here, this is, he is swift. It says immediately after, you know, God says, okay, just don't take his life. Satan's like, boom, and he's gone. And there he is. Here's a strike, Job. He's thorough, right? From sores of his feet all the way to the crown of his head. It's tormenting. And we looked at those things and it's solitary. The last thing it says in verse eight is that Job took a piece of broken pottery, which to scrape himself. Because whatever the pain is, maybe it's a burning that if he scrapes himself, there's, there's a moment of, of, of escape, at least at that particular point. But he must do that constantly. He scraped himself while he sat in the ashes. And this is what we need to understand about that, right? Probably when he says he sat in the ashes, it means that he has gone to a solitary place. He can't, he can't just be around normal people. People wouldn't want him to be around. Because what if it's contagious? So he sits amongst the burning rubbish ashes the rubbish heap. Why this makes sense to us is because the valley of Gehenna is outside Jerusalem. It's this kind of a, a, a valley that's right alongside the city. And that's where they dumped their garbage. And that's where they burned their garbage. So there was constantly ashes and stuff in that area. That's the term that Jesus starts to use for the concept of hell. A place where the fire doesn't end and the worm is never satisfied. <laughs> Job is there in a physical sense. If there's a Gehenna in that day, that's where Job is. So he's by himself, sitting in the ashes, mourning, broken, completely in affliction, right? In a physical affliction, has nothing going for him. But can I say this? This is the last we hear of Satan in all of the book of Job. See, there's, there is too much theology that gives Satan too much credit, Right? Like, like, so is he hovering around Job? Is he sending more missiles? Is he, is he continuing to do more? No. 
Because God has said, okay, you could do this and that's it. And that's it. He's gone. He's not in the picture. He's never mentioned for the rest of the book of Job. He's gone. We don't need to be afraid of the devil in the book of Job. He is merely a tool in the hand of God to do what God desires to be done. I need to move a lot faster. That's satanic pain. And then there's a wife's despair, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. There's so much that we can unpack with this, right? But let me just give you a warning. Protestant Christianity has been particularly harsh on Job's wife, you know? Would you like to be married to a Job's wife? Woo-wee, right? Like that kind of stuff. Um, Judaism and our Muslim friends have typically been a lot more kinder to her. And I think part of it is because um, they embrace the difficulty of suffering. Is she saying something that is not appropriate? Yes, she is. She is literally saying, are you holding fast to your integrity? That's the very thing God said is good about Job. He holds fast to his integrity still. And she's saying, are you still holding on to divine worship, right, to your devotion? Honey, maybe it's better for you to just curse God and just be done with it. Just die. Listen, we will face those difficulties, right? where we're thinking about our loved ones and the pain that they go through. And, and I, I say this all the time. I think there's an element where it's more difficult for you in that moment of despair to experience the pain of your loved one than for you to experience it yourself. If it's between me and Kathy or me and my wife, or, sorry, Kathy is my wife. That, that's, <laughs> that's an oddly misspoken word there, right? If it's between me and Kathy or me and my kids or one of you guys, if I could do it, I would say, okay, I will take that pain so that you wouldn't have to. But if you have that pain, I feel a deeper sense of helplessness. What else can I do? Can I comfort you? Can I get you another piece of, of, of pottery shard, right? What, what can I do to help comfort you? And there's nothing. There's moaning and groaning and pain and day and night down to the bones and out to the skin as it bursts open, hardens and bursts open again. Like, what can I do? She is lost in her hope for this life. And in that moment of weakness, she does say something that she probably regrets. But at least give her the break of knowing, like, man, this is a tough time. I think she's processing maybe death is better than suffering. And you're going to hear that argument as we get older at some point. Oh, she suffered so much. Oh, he suffered so much. You know, he can't take anymore. She suffered much as well. She's in the shadows, and she has similarly lost 10 children she is a suffering wife. She's, she's, she, doesn't have, she simply doesn't have a home or any place to lay her head down. I don't know what she's doing. Probably gone back to her family. She's given up on any semblance of a happy life, a happy family, or a once happy marriage. She's just lost hope. And so is she saying something that's wrong? Yes. But should we be castigating her and saying, man, that, that's a wonderful woman Job married, right? Like, it's like, you know, give her a break, man. Like, it's pretty bad. She's experiencing the same stuff. She's simply saying, just give in. Just say what you want to say, because I feel like I want to say that. Just, just bring that judgment on and just end this life and let's move on. She sees no possibility of recovery. Oh, we, should, we should move on. Sorry, I can't say more about Job's wife. And then we see Job's faith, and this is the last part of it. All right. 
But he says to her, verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all, the, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I want you to recognize Job's rebuke of his wife as being a strong one, but without accusation. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women. He doesn't say, foolish woman, right? He doesn't do that. He, do, he doesn't call her a fool of a toque or, you know, that's Gandalf, by the way, right? Um, he doesn't just castigate her as a fool. Because fool in the Bible, in the Old Testament, um, is a nickname for the genuine unbeliever, the one that believes that God doesn't exist, cannot do anything about what he does, and, and it exists with motivations purely incited by the fact that God can do nothing about this, right? That's not what Job is saying she is. He's saying she's speaking like that. It is a strong rebuke, but without accusation, and he is saying, wife, you're talking like you're an unbeliever. That statement is so wrong. But he's not saying she is an unbeliever, just that she's talking like one. You're talking like someone who does not embrace the sovereignty of God. That's exactly what a fool in the scriptures would do. Doesn't doesn't express his sovereignty, doesn't express his goodness, doesn't believe there's a God that we must fear and and reverence and, uh, and align ourselves to. You are speaking as one of the foolish women. And it implies that she should know better. And then his theology comes out this way. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Our theology of suffering should be able to remind us we deserve nothing and every good thing is his hand to give to us and he has every right to take it away if he would challenge us, if he needs to bend us to his will, if he needs to do something through the course of our lives, then blessed be the name of the Lord. So we shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? What a corrective that would be for everyone who thinks that God exists for my good versus God is just period good right? Because he exists because he is good and he has a right to take away good, to bring evil, not sinful evil necessarily, but, but pain, struggle, torment. And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He did not sin with his lips. Let me just say this, right? The outline that we've been going through is unimaginable loss in the life of Job. And we said the man of sorrow he worshipped. And then we looked at unyielding physical pain. And then we said the man of affliction holds true. And I'm using those phrases, that title, intentionally because we know who the man of sorrow, the ultimate man of sorrow is. It's not Job. It's the Son of God. Job is a suffering servant. Christ is the suffering servant. And so this is meant to be a picture of what is to come, that if there is to be a freedom from all of the wickedness, all the pain, all the war, all the struggle, all the, you know, the, the, the affliction of this life, it must be because God is bigger. And if God is bigger, then we can ask, right? We can ask God, Lord, would you remove this thorn from my flesh? And if the Lord says no, he is still sovereign and he's still good. And the example that Christ gives us is is Job, but one step further, because his affliction and his sorrow has nothing to do with anything he could ever deserve, but has everything to do with what we deserve. And he demonstrates the kind of worship and the kind of holding fast that even a man like Job could only try to do in his own faith. Jesus was the perfect man who lived the perfect life, And he died a sinner's death, not because he was a sinner, but because we are. 
and he took our place in death. So when we start to think about who God is in the midst of struggle and pain, and we start to see that Christ is not just an example, but he is the illustration of how God uses suffering, pain, in order to rescue us, in order to provide for us eternal security and unending life with him, then we understand that we, our perspective needs to be eternal and not for the moment. And I think that's part of what, what suffering and our theology of suffering has to bring us. God is eternal. His blessings are eternal. His salvation is eternal. Everything good in this life is temporary. So we give thanks and we don't hold it against God if he takes it away because he is God and we are not. Let's close in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for the grace that you have provided to us, the testimony of Job and then the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we see those connected in the sense that there is suffering that isn't necessarily connected directly in a straight line from the sufferer. And in Job's case, he certainly was a sinner like us, trusting in salvation from you, repentant of sin and seeking you. But in Jesus' case, there was no sin found in him, and yet he was killed as if he deserved the wrath of the Father. And Lord, we recognize that that is, that is our saving grace that his suffering and by his scourging we are healed. And Lord, may everyone here call upon the name of the Lord and may the gospel truth, Lord, infuse a courage to live this life despite its struggles and pains that we might still lift our eyes and know that this is not eternity. Eternity is to come and has been secured because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We praise you for your truth. And even as we continue to study the book of Job, may that truth ring true in our, in our ears and in our faith to trust in you beyond what we see now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.